it's in the name of Christ we ask these things. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I want to encourage you to grab your Bibles and uh, turn them to Matthew chapter 6, the first book of the New Testament as we continue our series in the Sermon on the Mount. And I want to read the passage that we're going to uh, look at this morning. This is actually the single longest passage in the Sermon on the Mount. It's also very familiar. And our Lord in this passage is going to tell us how to not freak out. How's that for a deal, huh? I don't know about you, but I'm interested. Let's read Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19, going to the end of the chapter in verse 34. Jesus' words to his disciples, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but instead lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and thieves don't break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light in you is darkness, then how great is the darkness? Oh, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, about what you eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look, Jesus tells us, at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you of not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil or spin, and yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. And yet, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But, I, but seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. That's our Lord's words to us this morning. Don't be anxious. Don't freak out. (laughs) That's what that means. Don't stress, Um, especially when it comes to financial provision. Uh, Do you ever worry about money? Are you American? (laughs) Uh, Actually, it it is true that those two things go together. Last year, 2017, CBS News ran an article that was based on a, yet another study. It was nothing new, but it was a new study that basically said all kinds of Americans are worrying about money all the time. And so CBS News ran an article on this that opened this way. Quote, if money worries had you tossing and turning last night, you're in good company. 
Even with the U.S. economy rounding into shape, 65% of Americans say that they lose sleep over financial concerns. Two out of three. Not just worry about it a little bit. Worry about it enough that sometimes I actually lose sleep over financial concerns. Two out of three Americans. That's a lot of people doing a lot of worrying about the same thing. Uh, the common, most common sources of worry were paying off debt, uh, student loan debt, anxiety over that kind of stuff, or consumer debt, um, uh, the escalating costs of medical care, and then saving for retirement. We lose sleep over these things at an astronomical rate. One might say America's two genuine pastimes are baseball and worrying about retirement. Not necessarily in that order, because <laughs> I think there's more people who worry about retirement than there are people who truly love baseball and apple pie and some of those other quintessentially American things. Modern America is hardly the first culture to have uh, what the Bible might suggest is a sinful obsession with money. We're hardly the first culture to do so, but we do have a particularly strong bent toward it. And, and that's not news that to probably to any of us, because it's, it's hard not to. It's difficult to grow up and live in this society for any length of time and not be conditioned to worry about money. We, we almost exist as Americans within a marinade, certainly, of, of cultural advertising that's constantly putting images in front of us, whether we're walking in the store or surfing the web or watching our favorite TV programs that are showing us what we could have, what we should have. And even though we're, we've, we're like the most marketed to generation in the history of the human race, and most people are pretty savvy to that. Like, I mean, we know when we look at a magazine picture of the perfect life, like we get that that's sort of photoshopped, right? <laughs> I mean, we know that, that that's not necessarily realistic, but just the ability to sort of filter out what's real and what's not doesn't prevent us from the, or doesn't make us immune from the effects of the fact that we just kind of, everywhere we go, it, it's like a marinade. We're just soaking in this message that says, look at all you could and should have. And that can produce anxiety and worry and a sense of discontent. I don't have enough, I need more. Then when I have enough, I want to show that I have enough to feel good about myself, which just makes everybody else want more. And the cycle goes on. How do you be unaffected by that? You, you can't. There's also, very closely connected to this, a cultural narrative that drives modern America. When you're young, the story goes, you need to go to school. At one point um, in Western civilization, going to school was to become a well-rounded person. Um, nowadays, going to school is to get a marketable job skill, right? Our society gave up on the well-rounded person thing a long time ago. That's of no value if it doesn't put food on the table. So the real question is, what are you doing to prepare yourself to make money? And our kids get that at the earliest ages in school nowadays, which puts a lot of pressure on us to do something and be something and be a young adult and start a career that has earning potential and arrive at a certain place where I'm setting aside money for retirement. But what happens if I find myself at 20 or 25 or 30 or 35 and my life isn't following that path yet? the anxiety, the stress that that can put us under. Uh, one of the things that comes out of these studies is that if you're an American who's like 30 and under, you are more stressed about money, odds are, than even Americans who are older. And some of that's this narrative telling you you're supposed to be something and have something you're not. And we lose sleep over it. That cultural narrative ends with the, the holy grail of the American experience, saving for retirement. You ought to save for retirement, which is true, by the way. <laughs> that's wise. That's smart. 
But when you start thinking about it, how much? Now, here's the problem with saving for retirement. Retirement is in the future for most of us who are thinking about saving for retirement. And the problem with the future is that it's like later. You know what I mean? It's not now. And I can't see even one second into the future, much less 10 or 20 or 40 years. So I don't know how much I'll need in the future. So how much should I save? And the correct answer is always more, right? Because it's the only possible way to hedge your bets. I can envision a lot of very realistic scenarios of what life might look like when, Lord willing, I get to the place where I may not be working full-time anymore. I can imagine all kinds of scenarios with the economy and with government regulation and with my health or my family's health or health care costs. Or the, the, the list of things to imagine is long and scary, and the only way I can know how much I'll need, because I can never actually know how much I need, is to simply save more, and how much more? Well, probably more than what I'm doing, and so we toss and we turn and we worry. I got to admit, of all the things, just personally speaking for a second, that I've just mentioned, that last one is probably the one that's most likely to get me personally worrying about money. I'm not immune to the cultural marinade or just the general um, narrative in our culture, but, but I'm like the long-term planner in, in my home. Um, like, I'm the one who's always thinking about, like, where are we going to be 20 or 30 or 40 years from now, and what, what are we doing about that now? And again, that, that's, that's good, it's good to be thinking about that. But often my thinking about it slides over into worrying about it. And here's what I've learned. I'm usually the last guy in the house to notice when that slide is taking place. <laughs> my wife, bless her heart, picks up on it right away. <laughs> my kids probably do. Dad's brooding. I don't know what's wrong with him, but I'm steering clear. No, I'm not. What are you talking about? Look in the mirror, dude. Okay, I got to admit it. I'm, I'm actually, yeah, it went from planning to like, I'm tense about this. I'm worrying. Thankfully, wherever you find yourself in that, if you're a Christian this morning, God does not leave us alone to mess with that fairly universal experience. Jesus actually spends significant time discussing financial worry in the Bible. And he also does here in the Sermon on the Mount. I mentioned a moment ago that this is the longest single segment of the Sermon on the Mount. You remember what these, these three chapters of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, are doing. Jesus is describing to his disciples what it means to be a disciple of Christ, what it means to live a disciple's life. And he says it's really defined by three key um, principles, three key truths. And so he gives us those three at the beginning, and then he spends the rest of the Sermon on the Mount applying them to one area of life after another after another. He began with those three uh, key principles at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5. Uh, the idea that God's world is invading our worlds. These two worlds are colliding, night and day different value systems. Secondly, we as disciples of Jesus, he tells us, our whole task, our whole job is to represent the values of God's kingdom in this world. And so often as Christians, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, that's the message we get loud and clear. We see our Lord telling us, you should represent God this way, and we see how far short we are falling from that. And so we kind of walk away from the Sermon on the Mount with that guilt because we've only heard the first two messages, but the third one is essential. He also tells us that he himself is the key to living this way. So I'm going to tell you what your job is, but you can't do it on your own. I've come to fulfill the law. I, he told us, have come to make you the kind of God-representing people that God has called you to be. So understand what the life that I'm calling you to, and then let me transform you 
so that you can live that kind of life. And then taking that whole idea, he simply applies it to over 15 different areas of life. He shows how it affects our relationships. If you live this way, here's how it's going to affect your worship and your prayer life. And today, he says, and if you live this way, here's how it's going to affect you when you get to that place that everybody gets to, which is worrying about money. What difference does it make in that moment that I'm a disciple of Jesus? That's what he's going to tell us today. And it's interesting to me that he, although he applies these three truths to lots and lots of different, very important areas of life, he spends more time explaining and unpacking this one, financial freakout, than he does any of the others. This is apparently an important topic, not just to modern Americans, but to disciples of Jesus at all times. So here's what Jesus is going to do. Uh, we've got the time this morning to just kind of overview this and get a sense of the, sort of the, the, the force of what our Lord is telling us. In the process, we're going to see two things. The first, there's kind of two paragraphs here. The first one is simply Jesus um, giving us some instructions. He tells us how to aim and direct our lives, along with a very important insight about human nature. So he's going to give us that in the first paragraph. Second paragraph, he simply says, so now here's what it looks like to flesh that out. And in that, he gives us three truths to fix your life on to cure financial worry. Now, lest we think that that's sort of a modern self-help three steps to success kind of thing, he's always going back to who God is as Christians and how we are letting him invade our lives. These are not necessarily three steps to get through worry on your own. These are three ways to renew your perspective as a Christian. Three things you can do, are supposed to do if you're a disciple of Jesus, to constantly renew yourself in the experience of God's Spirit living in me and through me, because I can be there one moment and the next moment I'm off. That is a daily and sometimes hourly need, and that's what our Lord is aiming at here. So with that in mind, let's look at what our Lord has to say. First, verses 19 through 24, what are the instructions he gives us? He gives us very clear instructions. Pursue greater wealth. When it comes to worrying about money, he says, pursue greater wealth. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on this earth because they're fleeting, he says. You know, um, money uh, comes and it goes, and possessions sometimes lose their value even if you continue to hold on to them. They're just are simply no guarantees. And so like the proverbial, you know, drinking salt water never quenches your thirst, pursuing money as a source of security never actually gives you ultimate security because it could always fade. So he says, actually, pursue greater wealth. Uh, one study of, recent study of millionaires, people whose net worth in the U.S. was between like one and five million dollars, uh, revealed that they frequently fear that they are one bad decision or one economic downturn away from wiping out almost all or all of their wealth. Now, as a guy who can safely say his net worth is not in danger of becoming five million dollars anytime soon, I can say I find that remarkable. I don't know about you. It's not surprising to me anymore because I've read those kinds of things over the years. So like I, I expect it, but I still find it remarkable because it contradicts the core assumption I have that if I was just able to amass more, I would feel way better about it. To some extent, that's true. But people who have been able to amass far more than me say they're still worried about it. And by the way, those that even make more and tend to worry less and less about where the next meal is going to come from end up worrying more and more about what money is doing to them and their families. So you exchange one set of worries for another. Jesus is saying it's, it's fleeting. It won't give you the kind of security you want. So rather than saying, so stop pursuing wealth, Jesus doesn't say that. Because that's actually more like Buddhism or Hinduism than it is Christianity. 
Jesus doesn't say, care nothing for wealth. The perfect disciple of Jesus just doesn't care. She sits in her little Zen corner and is totally unaffected by money. Doesn't matter, I'm at perfect balance and tranquility. That's a Buddhist version of nirvana. That is not Christianity. What he says is not, don't pursue wealth. What he says is, be smart enough to pursue real wealth. The, perfect Christian, the picture of the perfect Christian disciple is actually totally opposite of that person who's detached from wealth and doesn't care about it. It's somebody who passionately pursues the very best that life can offer. He just says, be wise enough to understand that God offers far more than this world and its money can. And so what our Lord has in mind here is not so much how much wealth we have or are chasing. What he is interested in is the chasing, the heart the acquisition of money and possessions as a source of security. That's what he's taking aim at. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, he says. He's not saying don't get a job and pay your bills. What he's saying is don't lay it up as a hedge against the future. Instead, lay up treasures in heaven as the source of security and where your hope lies. Why? Why does he tell us to pursue greater treasure rather than lesser treasure? Because of this key principle. It's in verse 21. If you're going to learn one lesson about human nature from this passage, this is it right here. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In other words, we are most devoted to that which we most treasure. At that moment, Jesus isn't telling us something about money. He's telling us something about us, the way the human heart works. We are devoted above all to that which we treasure above all. This is a statement about how God made you to work, how he made me to work, and that's intentional on God's part. He designed us at the core of our being to be responders to joy and happiness and security and contentment and beauty because he designed us to be worshipers of him and he is the ultimate source of all of those things. And so it's within our nature to respond and worship and chase and pursue after that which is the most beautiful and that which is the most valuable. We are devoted above all to what we treasure above all. And this is an important principle he's going to come back to in the second paragraph when he's telling us how to put these things into practice. For now, let me just say that this is the consistent uh, witness of not only Jesus, but the rest of the Bible. Matthew chapter 13, uh, verse 44, Jesus um, is giving several parables or word pictures about what it's like to become a Christian, what it's like to live the Christian life. And he says in Matthew 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, like a valuable possession, uh, which a man found, and then he covered up, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and abides the field. Do you know what Jesus is saying there? This is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what it's like to live as a Christian. You've found something that's so much more valuable. You found that pirate treasure that we all dreamed about as kids with the map and the island and the little X. And like you found it and you open the chest and it's just full of jewels and gold, more money than you could ever have in your life. And so he says, then you bury that in a field so nobody else is going to steal it from you and you go and you sell everything else that you have to get this. And here's the key thing. He says, enjoy you sell everything else you have. Not like, oh, it's so hard, I'm suffering for God, I have to get rid of this stuff. It's like, yay, I get to get rid of this garbage stuff to get this amazing thing. That's what the Christian life is like. It's the pursuit of the greatest treasure. Christianity is coming to see God's infinite worth as ultimately beautiful. It is ultimately beautiful, 
but we don't often see it that way. That's actually what he tells us next in verses 22 and 23, that whole business about like the eyes, the lamp of the body, and if your eye is dark, then your body is dark. What's he getting at there? I think the, the best way to, to get at this quickly is maybe with a word picture. It's almost like, uh, you know, if you picture a warehouse and um, there's windows along one wall and the bright sunlight is streaming in those windows. And it's a little darker inside because it's inside, but, but you've got this bright light and like moths were sort of drawn to that light. There's the light side of the warehouse where all the windows are. And like, I can't, I can't wait to get my work done and get it done well so that I can get outside because that's where I really want to be. There's a purpose here, but this isn't where I want to be. I want to be there. But of course, over time, and if you've been in an old industrial part of a city, you've probably seen this, uh, the windows of a warehouse can grime over, depending on what's done in there. They can get greasy or grimy or dirty, and less and less light gets in. And if we compress this analogy a little bit, you can imagine the windows getting so grimed over to the point where there's only this faded, dull little glow that's coming in. Hardly any light is getting it at all. The sun is shining outside as brightly as it ever has, but suddenly the light part of the warehouse over by the windows isn't very light anymore because not much light is coming in, but the problem is that happens so gradually our eyes just adjust to the darkness. And now we look over at the light part of the warehouse and it's still pretty dim, and that's what Jesus is saying. If the light part is really dim, then how dark is the dark part? Now the dark parts are just pitch black. And I'm not even thinking about getting outside anymore. I'm just grinding away at the drudgery in the warehouse. Jesus says, that's what, that's what the, the Christian life is like. The light of God's glory is shining in, and we do our work here with the joy of getting to be with him for all eternity in heaven, but the windows can get grimed over. I suddenly stop seeing the joy of, of the beauty of God's glory clearly for what it is. And what Jesus is telling us here is that money and the false promises of security that it provides is one of the chief sources of window grime in life. Money and the fleeting promises of security that it offers is one of the chief things that will grime up the windows of your life and help you not see God clearly. And so he concludes in verse 24, you cannot serve both God and money. In other words, God and money are competitors in the battle for your affections and my affections. We can only love one thing most. We can love a lot of things. I can love football and fly fishing and my family and my job and my God, but I can't love all of those things equally. I can't love all of those things most. The human heart is such that we can only be most devoted to one thing. And in the language of the Bible, if that uh, most devoted spot in my heart is occupied by anyone or anything other than God, it's called idolatry because my heart is most devoted to what I most love, and so if I most love my family, then I'm worshiping my family, not God. If I most love my job and financial security, I'm worshiping financial security, not God. It is possible to have God and have money at the same time. It is not possible to passionately pursue God above all and passionately pursue the security of money above all. Jesus is telling his disciples some truths about who we are and saying, because this is true, because of this important insight into how the human heart works, make sure you're pursuing the greatest treasure, not the lesser treasure. That's the key. This reality of the human heart can be um, co-opted and used to our advantage. If I come to treasure God more than money, then I will pursue him more than money and worship him fully. So that's the key. Jesus says, worship him fully. How do I do that? How do I do that? How do I know, as a disciple of Jesus, who has bills to pay and all these other things, 
if I'm loving money too much? Well, that's our second paragraph here. Jesus says, let me show you what that kind of life looks like. And what he zeroes in on, I'm sure there's more to say about it than this, but this is where our Lord chooses to go. One of the key ways, one of the telltale signs, the surefire indicators that I'm focusing as a Christian more on the security of money than I am of God is anxiety. That's what he actually says. It's anxiety. Verse 25. Therefore, very important word. (laughs) In light of all of this stuff that's currently up on the screen, in light of everything I just taught you, now, here's the takeaway. Here's what I want you to focus on. Don't freak out. That's literally what Jesus says about money, about getting your needs met, especially future ones. Don't freak out. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Don't experience anxiety about your life. This is the the main point he wants to drive home. He repeats it twice. He says it three times. He says it there in verse 25. Don't be anxious. Again, drop down to verse uh, 31. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or drink? And then once again, the very last verse, verse 34. Therefore, in summary, do not be anxious. Do you get the idea Jesus doesn't want us to be anxious? Now, just before he, we we dive into how he tells us not to be anxious, because he does give us three things in this passage we're going to look at that help us reframe our perspective and give us power over anxiety, uh, put us on the path to being worshipers of God first. Can we pause and just say, like, is, is, that, is that a realistic command? Can, can you command the affections? Can you, can you command the emotions? If somebody is full of worry and they're full of anxiety, can you just tell them, hey, Stop. Quit worrying. Oh, that's so helpful. Thank you. <laughs> I wish I'd thought of that. Huh. Problem solved, right? It seems ridiculous, doesn't it? And if you have that in mind when you're reading the Bible and you're going like, well, wait a minute, this sounds a little fishy. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily blame you at first. It kind of sounds like that's exactly what Jesus is saying. You got financial anxiety? Well, stop it. There, don't you feel better now? Many years ago, some of you have probably seen this, um, Bob Newhart, the comedian, did a, a comedy sketch that was sort of based on this idea. You can see it on YouTube if you want, because you can see anything on YouTube these days. Um, but in this comedy sketch, he's playing a, a, a psychologist or a counselor or something, and this lady comes into his office to get some help with her problems, and she sits down, and she starts telling him like all these deep you know, phobias and fears that she's wrestling with, and he keeps just saying, okay, well, here, here, I can fix this for you real easy. She's like, oh, great, takes out the notepad. What am I supposed to do, doctor? He goes, here it is. You ready? She goes, yeah. You're, you're feeling anxiety? She goes, yeah. He goes, stop it. You know, naturally, she jerks away. She's like, excuse me? He's like, well, stop it. Quit being so anxious. That's ridiculous. Cut it out. So then she goes on, well, well, I also have this problem. He goes, you got that problem? Yeah, well, stop it. You know, and, and this thing keeps going on and on. It's, it, it's a little bit insensitive by today's standards, but, you know, <laughs> forewarned is forearmed. If you want to look it up, it is funny. The, the main thing that's actually funny about it is not the insensitivity. It's that they're playing on this idea that it seems ridiculous to take somebody who's really worried about something and just tell them to quit worrying. And then we open up the Bible and Jesus goes, you're worried about money? Well, don't be anxious. Stop it. Can you just command the affections? Can you just flip a mental switch and make yourself stop worrying? Well, remember what we said earlier. 
This is not a three-step self-help program for how you can overcome worry in your life. This is an entire sermon on how sinful disciples of Jesus submit to his spirit to experience a transformed heart and a renewed life by the power of God. It is true that we can't just flip a magical switch and change our emotional experiences, but as Americans, I think we do tend to assume that we're either powerless against something like anxiety. I'm just a victim. I could never stop worrying. Or we can get out of it, but it's up to us to get out of it on our own. And that's what all the self-help gurus will teach you how to do. And Jesus is offering a perspective that's completely different than both of those. He's saying you're not powerless against it, but you don't just fix it on your own. If you're one of my disciples, here's how you live out the pursuit of greater treasure when you experience anxiety over money. He says three things to focus on to renew your perspective on God's spirit and experience a revitalized spirit-dependent life that will give you, by God's power, Power over anxiety, living for stuff, which leads to financial idolatry. What do we focus on? He gives us three things in this passage. The knowledge that um, our lives are just a mean to an end. We have a greater purpose. Secondly, the idea that anxiety doesn't accomplish anything anyway. And lastly, the idea that God, our provider, is always present. Let's look at each of these briefly in turn. First, what do I focus on if I'm a Christian and I want to be a disciple of Jesus and I'm worrying a little bit about money or I think I might be and what do I do? He says, here's the first thing you do. Here's the first thing to focus on. Understand that living is a simple means to a glorious end. Remember that. (laughs) And don't just remember it like between the ears with the gray cells. Think about it. Uh, chew on it, process it, ponder it, get your heart excited about it, engage your emotions in it. That takes a lot of work. Yeah. Jesus says, do the work. (laughs) Do the work. Because as it has often been said, vision leaks. I don't even know who coined that phrase, but it's true. You know, I can be a Christian who's all excited about God and who he is and living for Jesus one day, and the next day, it's like I'm just all consumed with the stuff of my own life. It's like, where did that vision go? Where did that guy go yesterday? It's a constant fight and battle to be renewed in the knowledge that our life is about a greater purpose. For many years before I came to Harvest, I worked on the staff of Good Shepherd Community Church over on the east side uh, with a pastor named Stu Weber. Stu is really good at coining these little phrases. A few of them have stuck with me. One of them related to this point. He used to always like to say, you know, we've got to remember that life is not just about taking up space and eating groceries. (laughs) Like the very first time I heard him say that, it was just like, I love that. That's genius. (laughs) It just like took all of this like tense anxiety balloon in my heart and just like, just and all just deflated. Like what? Am I worried about? Life is about more than existing doesn't exist to just continue to exist no matter what a secular biologist says is the point of life, right? God says we have a purpose. And by the way, that's one of the greatest needs of the human heart, to know that our life matters, that that the fact that we were here for however long by God's grace we're on this earth, that it made a difference, that it mattered. And once again, that's intentional. God designed us that way because he did create us for a greater purpose. The problem with financial anxiety is it focuses me on how do I continue existing? It gets my mind off of why I'm existing in the first place. 
At the end of verse 25, Jesus says, um, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? But when you're focused, he's telling us on where's my food and my clothing going to come from, that's all you're thinking about. It's as if existing is just here to continue existing. But we exist as Christians for a larger purpose, the purpose of loving God, knowing him, spreading a passion for his glory. Man, someday I am, unless the Lord returns, going to die. And Lord willing, somebody will want to have a memorial service for me. (laughs) And I sure hope that day people don't get together and say, well, he managed to have a nice house. Dude knew how to handle his money. May not have even had much, but he handled it really well. Good for him. He sure consumed his fair share of groceries in the number of decades (laughs) that he was on this earth. Well done. Um, Who cares at that point? I won't. What I want to hear is what Jesus says. I want God to hear uh, to say to me um, what Jesus puts in the mouth of the master in the parable of the talents where he tells the unfaithful servant, gosh, what I gave you to, to invest, at least you could have put it in a bank, but you didn't even do that. I want to hear what he told the good servants. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter now into the joy of your master. Now the real wealth you've been laying up is the payoff. Jesus says, that's where the heart of a disciple is oriented. So reorient yourself that way because it's perspective and perspective shifts, it leaks and we have to be constantly renewing ourselves in it. And particularly in times of financial stress, they pull me in another direction. It takes my eyes up off of heaven and puts them down into the dirt of here and now. And it gets my mind consumed overly so with where I'm at. And how do I know it's overly so? Jesus says, because now you're experiencing anxiety. Your stress is an indicator that you're too consumed with it if you're one of my disciples. I start to function as if life is all about taking up space and eating groceries because I'm consumed with planning my space and paying for my groceries. That's all I'm thinking about. There's a constant battle to maintain this focus. We've got to move on, but I'll just mention this last point. Um, In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul prays for this very thing, for an entire church, the church of people that were in Ephesus, a first century city. He he says of this whole church in Ephesians 1, 16 and 17, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. That is like, in other words, that's kind of Apostle Paul Bible language to say like, I pray that you would get it. Not that you, just that you would know it in your head, although it starts there, and believe it, but that you would actually experience spiritually, relationally, emotionally, and intellectually the truth. What's this great truth he's praying for? He says, I pray that you would know the hope to which God has called you. Why does he pray that a church full of Christians would actually be filled with the hope of heaven? They already believe in heaven, don't they? Yes, but vision leaks. And he knows it. And so he says, I'm praying for you guys that you will remember it and you'll be filled with it because you have to constantly fill yourself with it. And he also says, I pray that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. It's Ephesians 1.17. You hear that language? Riches, value, treasure, worth. Where is the Apostle Paul getting all these ideas? He's getting them from Jesus. The pursuit of Christ, he has already guaranteed us an inheritance that is far more valuable than anything we have here. And he's saying, I pray that that would drive your life. That's a great prayer. We all need it. We need it daily, sometimes hourly. So the first thing to focus on is the idea that life is a simple means to a much more important end. Secondly, a second truth to focus on is the idea that anxiety is actually wasted energy. 
Anxiety is wasted energy. Verse 27. Which of you, Jesus asks rhetorically, this is one of those questions that's not a question, it's a statement. Which of you, by uh, worrying, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Answer? It's obvious what the answer is, right? Do you know what Jesus is saying there? He's saying your worry doesn't actually do anything. There's no, there's no profit to it. It, it, it. It's energy that gets expended. It's waste heat. It, it doesn't accomplish anything. It does take physical and emotional energy to worry. Have you noticed? <laughs> we all know what it's like to worry, whether it's about finances or something else. Maybe it's a big test you've got coming up, a final, and you're stressed about it. You know, or maybe it is a financial thing. You're worried how you're going to get to the end of the month or, or some big job interview. You know, we've all had experiences where we worry a lot. And sometimes, by God's grace, we kind of get through that time period and, and whatever we're worried about kind of works out okay. Ooh, and then there's relief. And in that moment, like, do you feel totally energized? I don't know about you, but I'm usually just exhausted. Like, I'm, I'm shot. I got nothing left in the tank. I need to go crash. I need to go recover. I got no energy in my life to pick up the Bible or pray with passion or go connect with other people or look for needs that I can meet in Jesus' name. I need me time. I got to recover from my worry. And Jesus said, what did all that accomplish? Anxiety is a great way to waste your life as a disciple of Jesus. And so he says, like, recognize that. It's it's a normal thing we experience, but if I can understand, by the way, it helps to do this before you're in a bout of big anxiety so that you can draw on it when you are there. But, but even if you don't really internalize this before, like in the middle of the worry, it's like just name it, understand what it is and say this is a response I'm having because I'm overly focused on this thing and it's not doing for me what I want my life to be doing. It's not accomplishing anything. My wheels are stuck in the mud and I'm just putting that pedal to the metal. And the engine is roaring and revving and the wheels are spinning and the gas is being consumed. All the energy is being burned and the car is going absolutely nowhere. Eventually, the engine's going to run out of gas and they still won't have accomplished anything. I'll just have an empty gas tank. So Jesus challenges us to think about the idea that that the energy that goes into worry about money, it doesn't doesn't do anything. those Those are moments of energy and hours in my day that I'll never get back. And they didn't accomplish anything eternally significant. Anxiety, I think Jesus is telling us, can siphon off energy that is much better spent pursuing my relationship with God, building my church, investing in other people in Jesus' name. So if I know that and I acknowledge that, he says, force yourself to understand that and you'll start to see the emptiness of it, which helps reform and reframe perspective. These two things are closely connected. My life is about more than just existing and secondly, the worry doesn't help me do the more. So understand these things. But lastly, a third and final perspective, and this is the one he actually spends the most time on. Understand that God, our provider, is there, there, (laughs) and that he loves you. Understand that God, our provider, is there and that he loves you. This is these analogy gives. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. And I was so in a reap, or, um, gather into barns. They don't go to school. They don't develop careers, and yet they manage to eat. <laughs> now they have to go out and get the seed. It doesn't just fall out of the sky on them, but like it's there. God provides for them. 
And for clothing, the whole thing about the lilies and God clothes, as it were, metaphorically, the flowers. And they're just like weeds that get burned up and go away. And he says in both cases, are you not much more valuable than birds and flowers? God created the human race in his image, unlike birds and unlike flowers, the capstone of his creation. You're valuable. He loves you. And if he cares that much for things that, yeah, he cares about birds and flowers, but not as much as you, then how much do you think he won't care about you? In other words, in the midst of your financial worry, you're not thinking about God. I have to admit that's usually true. When my planning, usually long-term planning, shifts over into worrying, I'll tell you, the one person who's not on my mind in that moment is God for sure. (laughs) I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about my family. I'm thinking about our needs and our income and how we're going to pencil it all out and make it work. I'm thinking about everyone and everything but God. And yet Jesus says, for the disciple of Jesus, we recognize that in every facet of life, someone else is always at the table. Capital S, capital E. In every facet of life, someone else is always at the table the God who made us. This is perhaps the most distinctively Christian of the three points that Jesus makes. They're all biblical. They are all um, theological. But it's possible to take the first two points, you know, focus on life having a greater purpose and understand that anxiety is, is, is often waste energy and understand those without reference to God at all. In fact, that's what a lot of the self-help um, gurus will do for you today. That CBS News article I referred to at the beginning of our time this morning that was it was a whole article on how Americans worry too much about money. Well, naturally, it concluded with, well, so if you're in that place, you know, here's some things you can do. And they went and talked to some expert. I don't know who it was, a financial counselor or psychologist or somebody, somebody who could be thought, thought of as an expert and said, what do you what do, you do if you're in financial anxiety? And, and they gave a few pieces of advice, all of which were actually fine. I mean, there's nothing wrong with anything that was said. They were like, you know, well, you know, make a plan. If you don't have a budget, you know, make a budget, and that'll help you feel better about it. Or maybe you need to cut your spending. Maybe you're worried about your spending because you're spending too much. If you cut your spending, you'll be worried less, right? I mean, talk to your friends so you're not alone in that. I mean, it was good enough advice. Everything they said was fine as far as it goes. The problem is it just doesn't go very far. Like, it can be helpful, but at the end of the day, I can have all the plans I want, cut all the spending I want, talk all the friends I want, and I still don't know that I'll have enough to get through tomorrow. It doesn't cure the anxiety problem. That's why Jesus isn't just giving us three steps, self-help steps to pull ourselves out of anxiety. He says we recognize that the purpose isn't just a purpose we come to ourselves, it's the purpose God gave us. Anxiety pulls us away from that purpose, and when I am legitimately worried about making sure that the bills are paid i got to understand that it's not my ability to pay bills that ultimately results in life. God is the provider of life. That's the first and true, most true principle at the core of the thinking of a Christian. He says, so refocus on that because we lose sight of it. Renew your perspective in God who is the provider of all things and his love for you. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 says not to be anxious about anything but to bring our concerns to God through prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God, including financial anxieties. And then it promises that the peace of God, God's peace, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Interesting phrase, guard us. Guard us from what? Guard us from catapulting off the cliff down into despair and anxiety, which pulls our focus off of God and causes us to waste our lives. Like guardrails that keep us on the path moving up the side of the cliff toward God's glory, 
prayer and trusting God with those things, God says, I'll give you peace that will prevent you from going off of that, but you've got to come to me and give me those anxieties. And I'm not going to God if I don't even remember God is there. Because I'm not thinking about God, I'm just thinking about me and how I can fix this. The more I'm consumed with worry, the further God is from my trust. That's what faith means, trust. He says, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of little trust. You're not trusting God. But fortunately, the reverse is also true. The bigger my view is of God, especially emotionally, and in the moment, like I'm thinking about him and I'm focusing on him, I'm worshiping him, the more that that's true of me, the less I will suddenly find like I'm not even worrying anymore. I barely even noticed. A focus on God and a focus on worry are like oil and water. If the cup's full of the oil of worry and I pour in more and more water, it just pushes the oil out. They can't coexist together. So Jesus says, remember what I taught you earlier. You most love what you most treasure. So if you want to not be a person who's wasting his or her life in anxiety, focus on renewing your perspective in these three ways. It will lead your heart to treasure God above all, which you will find is going to drive out worry. If only we could get there once and get that one nailed and move on to the next thing and never have to struggle with worry, that would be great. But of course, that's not, that's not the case. The Christian life is a constant fight to renew our perspective on the fact that we have a greater purpose than just existing, that worry is often waste heat, it's waste energy, and lastly, that God, our provider, is there and he loves us. Friends, just to wrap this up, why is he just talking about all this in the Sermon on the Mount? What does this have to do with two worlds colliding? Well, the Christian life is about putting God on display. That's what it's about. That's that second principle. Uh, we represent God's world in this world. It's communicating the glory of God and the greatness of the gospel in words and in our lifestyles. And every person can relate to the worry about whether or not we will have enough under certain circumstances. But there is a distinctly Christian way to respond to that that puts God on display. When I am pursuing God so strongly that I don't even worry even when I don't have all the financial answers. Sure, I may plan. There's a place for that. You should plan. But when planning becomes worrying and I immediately renew my perspective on God, what I am saying by my emotional state and by my life is that God is greater treasure than even if every financial worry I ever had was gone. Relatively speaking, I would still have nothing. I'd rather sell it all and go buy this field <laughs> and have that treasure for eternity. That draws the hearts and minds of a watching world to the truth that God is there and that his infinite worth is the most beautiful thing a person could possibly imagine. Would you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you for the truth that your infinite worth is ultimately beautiful. But I stand here as somebody who firmly believes that and struggles daily to keep that at the center of my thinking and my feeling and my decision-making. And I'm grateful that in the Bible, when we open it up, um, that's not a unique experience to me, and it's not something that catches you by surprise. You understand our limitations. You understand our sin. You understand our need to be constantly renewed in these truths. And so I want to pray for myself I want to pray for the members of this church 
that, Father God, you would renew us daily as we reach for and strive for perspective, whether that means we're memorizing scripture or listening to music that redirects our thoughts here or talking with friends and family about it or reading stories of people who embody these values. There's so many ways, God, that we can work to refocus our perspective. It is work. And so I pray that you would give us a heart for the work. And most of all, God, I pray that you would empower successful shifting of perspective where it needs to happen. God, where we are worried overly about money, I pray that you would help us to understand the sin there and repent of it, and that you would give us, by your Spirit, the ability to focus as a people on pursuing the greatest treasure in the world. Help us to see the difference between wise planning and passionate pursuit, and to live out a very distinctive treasure-seeking in our culture that seeks not the treasure of the Holy Grail of retirement, but God that seeks the treasure of the Holy Grail of being the presence of God for all eternity. And I pray that you would give us boldness to live that way out loud and that that would catch the minds of other career-driven, hard-working people in our community who are pursuing the Holy Grail of retirement and money and that you would use that to draw them to an understanding of yourself and faith and repentance in Christ. Use us in this church to glorify your name in this way, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.